message uh, that I'm sharing today is for the sake of others, and uh, and I'm just excited to bring this word because I feel like a number of things have spoken to me this week. And don't you love it when God is speaking to you, and it's like the pieces all fit together, and you get to see a whole picture, you know? And it feels like I'm in a moment where I have a picture before me, and I want to communicate it. I feel a little nervous about it because because um, I, I want to do justice to what I feel like God is showing me. Uh, and I'm grateful for the prayer that you guys all just prayed with me because I, I truly believe it's going to help us. I don't know if there's a way to take the ringing out. Now I'm being a little bit of a prima donna, but I'm hearing the ring. You're working on it. Okay. Um, I'm like, do I need to pray again? I might need to pray again. <laughs> so what I'm talking about today is this idea, because we all want to live deep at the house of prayer. Like, most of us at Newbridge Church, most of us are here because there was something in our spiritual walk where some point at which we said, I want more, I need to go deeper, I'm hungrier for something else. And you found yourself saying, I want to go to that place where they pray night and day. I want to go to that church where they marry spirit and word, right? I want to be in an environment where people are pressing into God and it's more than just typical Sunday Christianity, right? And that and that is, that is why many of you are here in this room. That's why I find myself here is I, I remember encountering one of the missionaries of the House of Prayer early on, 15 years ago almost, and hearing his heart for God and going, I don't know God how he knows God, and I want to know God in that way. I want to know God in that way, right? And so, so I got engaged in, in the house of prayer and, and began to, uh, began to, you know, I came on staff for a season and what I thought was a six-month season grew into a 15-year season. And, uh, and, and, you know, I was an environmental studies major in college as well as a business major. I have a BS in environmental studies, which depending on what you think of science may be an appropriate uh, acronym. <laughs> and so, but I have a BS in environmental science. There is a little ironic. And, um, and so you know, but I began this journey into the, the heart of God. But what I realized along the way, and you'll see kind of how this connects in, in, in a moment, um, what I realized along the way is that sitting in a room praying night and day, you can accumulate a lot of knowledge about God. You can, you can accumulate a depth of intimacy with God. But there's only so much that you can fill that reservoir without having to have a meaningful outflow, right? And it was cool. I told you there are a lot of little puzzle pieces that God's been giving me over this past week. And I was watching one of those planet Earths with my children. It was the one about fresh water. And they got to this whole segment about the longest lake in the earth. And my science part of me kind of geeked out on this. So excuse me if I use a couple technical terms. But I researched it. I found out some great information for you guys today. So we're going to do a little science. We're going to do a little science uh, presentation here. Are you guys ready? All right, hang with me. So Lake Tanganyika, it's in Burundi. It's the world's longest freshwater lake and its second deepest. It actually holds it's so deep and long that it holds 17% of the Earth's fresh water. It's compared to an ocean because its depth reaches about 4,820 feet at its deepest point. Okay, so hang with me. This is where I get a little nerdy, all right? This is called an enderic basin. And an enderic basin is a drainage basin that retains water but has no outflow to other external bodies of water. 
So all the water from the surrounding region is flowing into this very deep lake, right? But there's no outflow. So you can tell somebody this week, say, you know, do you know what an enderic basin is? They taught me at church on Sunday. And then when you have an enderic basin, what happens is, much like you have stratification within geology, you end up with different stratas of water um, because it's just all sitting there. So different chemicals settle to different parts. Like you have different salinity, oxygenation, density, and temperature causes these different layers to form. And they actually lead to uh, being barriers to mixing and so what happens is then there's no oxygen at the bottom layers, at the deepest layers of the lake. And where there's no oxygen, nothing can live. See, I was like, there's a sermon illustration. And <laughs> as a consequence of the stratification, the deep sections contain something called fossil water. And fossil water is not only dead, it actually becomes toxic. Somebody said, now somebody, right? <laughs> the oxygen devoid deepest sections, they contain li highly toxic levels of hydrogen sulfide and are essentially lifeless except for bacteria. So nothing good grows there. And something bad might actually grow there, right? So what am I trying to tell you? Now, if this deep basin had an outflow, then all of that would mix up and there would be oxygen in the water and then you would have this really deep lake that isn't only filled with life in part of it, but the whole thing would be able to be filled. But where there's no movement, there's no life, right? <laughs> all right, okay, that's it. I'm not gonna get my preach on quite yet. We're still in the introductory illustration, all right? I gotta got to keep under control here. So why am I telling you about the science of this lake if it's not obvious already? We want to have a spiritual life that is very, very deep. I want to be Tanganyika deep, right? I want to be that kind of deep. Um, but if your life lacks outflow, there's not going to be any life in the water, right? And so what am I talking about? We're going to talk about the tension that we all feel as a praying people between our being with God which we all agree is essential, it's first commandment, and our doing with God, which is second commandment, right? And how do we live in the tension of our doing and our being? And the danger even in that tension is that our doing and our being actually becomes about us and not about God or others, right? Um, and so I want to share even a little bit where I am personally in this because I'm not preaching something that God has fully formed in me. I'm preaching something that I'm in, in, very much in the journey on, okay? And what I mean by that is when I'm explaining to my wife about how we need to decenter and we need to live a different kind of selfless, because she's like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, okay. And, you know, our other team members here at the House of Prayer, I'm like, I'm nervous to preach this because I, I know that, you know, the next conflict we have, they're going to go, yeah, you know, remember that message you preached last Sunday about, you know, living deep and having an outflow in the lives of others, right, okay? And so, you know, I'm very much in formation on this, and so I don't present any of this as an authority, but I do present it as what I believe is an invitation from the Spirit of God for all of us. And I'm saying yes to that invitation even as I'm sharing the message. So Paul's prayer, 
I want to start there. We're going to now, we'll transition from the science lesson to a Bible lesson, right? It's one of my favorite prayers, and it's so cool that you can be so familiar with something, and yet at the same time, not see it until God begins to speak to you about it. And it's Colossians 1.9. And Paul's praying for the church in Colossae in this passage. I'm going to skip right to verse 10. Well, I'll do the, the intro for it. So church in Colossae, this is a church that Paul is laboring for in prayer. He says, you've responded in a way that fruit is being born in your lives. He says, since the day we heard of it, in verse 9, we do not cease to pray for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You'd walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, okay? And this is this tension of doing and being, growing in the knowledge of God, being fruitful in every good work. And what I love is that Paul presents a theology that, that shows that he's wrestling with that same tension between doing and being. And they actually have a spiritual leader in the midst of the church in Colossae, this guy who had become Paul's traveling companion, who was from the Colossian church, and his name was Epaphras. Look at somebody and say, Epaphras. You're learning a new Bible character today. They only mention Epaphras two times, and it's in the book of Colossians, Colossians 1 and Colossians 4, right, in Paul's introduction and in his closing remarks. But apparently this guy, Epaphras, is, is awesome enough that he gets a Bible reference, right? And if I could pick two things to be said about my life, if you're going to say two things about me in the Bible, I would like them to be similar to the things that were said about Epaphras, okay? In Colossians 1.9, I'm sorry, 1.6, right before that prayer I just mentioned, it says, you learned about the good news from Epaphras, he was a diligent worker. He preached the gospel so that a whole church community sprang up from his instruction. And Paul's going, you didn't learn about the good news from me. You learned about it from the guy who grew up in your midst, Epaphras, right? And then the second reference comes in Colossians 4. It says that um, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, See, Epaphras was both deep, but also living for the sake of others, right? A bondservant of Christ who was preaching the word of God so that a whole community sprung up around his teaching. They heard the word of God from Epaphras, and yet he was diligent and fervent in his prayers for them. Hashtag live that Epaphras life. So the classic illustration of, let's get that hashtag going. I don't know. Shelly, what do you think? Shelly's somewhere shaking her head. No, Epaphras life is not going to happen. You can hashtag this message, at least this one, Shelly, with hashtag Epaphras life. Okay. So the classic illustration of this tension, we see it in Mary and Martha, right? And what I hate about the story of Mary and Martha is if there's a sin that Martha committed, it was not that she wanted to make the sandwiches, Okay, that was not Martha's sin. A lot of times we miss this story and people go, man, I'm struggling because I have more of a Martha mentality, which means they want to get stuff done. And you're more of a Mary because that means you want to pray and I'm more of a Martha and they kind of get down on themselves. And I don't want you to hear that doing is bad because nowhere in the Bible does it say doing the works of the kingdom is bad, right? It actually says that we should be fruitful in every good work. A good work, it, it means work. It means you're going to have to preach to somebody, serve somebody, get your hands dirty. And we know Jesus worked. He worked himself to the place of exhaustion, casting out demons, healing the sick, feeding the people, teaching the word of God. If Jesus is our example, he didn't just spend his time on the mountaintop in prayer. 
He retreated to the place of prayer, but he was as much about doing as he was about being. Martha's sin was that she put the doing before the being. Okay? You can't have outflow if you don't first have inflow. You're not going to have a Tenganyika deep reservoir in your life unless you have first a place where the water's coming in. But if it stays in there and doesn't flow out, there's not going to be any life. So we have to understand what Martha did wasn't that she was doing something more important or better than what Mary was doing. What she did was she was in her doing. She got offended with her sister and said, Jesus, won't you make her come make sandwiches with me? And he goes, she's actually paying attention to the thing that's most important. And you're worried and troubled about a bunch of other stuff that's not as important. And the main thing she was doing, see, you can get preoccupied with prayer and not be focused on Jesus. Okay? And where Mary was doing the one thing that was needed wasn't that she was living a devout life of prayer and reading the Bible. She was consumed with the person of Jesus, right? And that's the inflow into my life is the person of Jesus. And I want to encounter Jesus. And yes, we encounter him in prayer and we encounter him in the word. But that's what it's about. It's about living at the feet of Jesus. And when he says this isn't ever going to be taken away from her, that's what he's referring to. The one thing that's actually needed is that my life, the flow of life into me is all about this man. And beloved, if you make your life about Jesus, this one thing will never be taken from you. Whether you're a teacher, a doctor, an intercessory missionary, an overseas missionary, right? No matter where you are, that you're doing your life from the feet of this man, that you're consumed with him, that you're doing what Jesus said in John 5, I only do that which I see my father do. You're living a life of communion and connection with him, and that is our being, being in God, and our doing can flow from that place, right? Jesus said it in John 15, 7, one of my favorite passages, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, substitute that word for being with, right? If you are being with me and my word is with you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. That's a pretty amazing promise. Do you want Jesus to say, hey, I'll do for you anything that, that you want me to do for you? Because that's what he just said. So I go, okay, how do I get into that arrangement? And what's his answer? Be with me. Just be with me. Be with me, let my word be in you. And if you're with me, if you're with me, you're going to ask for the things I want, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to grow and sanctify the desires that you want. And in this being with, in this communing, we're going to do everything that you could desire. But it doesn't stop there. We can't stop there, right? Because by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples, right? And then he says, John 15, 9, as the Father loved me, I have also loved you abide in my love. And the danger sometimes of cherry picking a favorite verse is that you kind of lose the context, right? But when we look at those three verses together, he's saying the same thing in three different ways. He's going, be with me and I'll do whatever you desire, right? It's going to bring glory to my father. It's going to bring fruitfulness to your life. And then what is the essence of being with God? In 1 John 4, we'll talk about it in a little bit. It says, God is love. And if we, or maybe it's three, God is love. And if we abide in love, we abide in God. 
like if we center ourselves in this place of communion, and it is somewhat mystical, and it is all about prayer, and it is all about God's word, that you can't get around that being the essence of the life that has depth. But if you are really doing that, not as religious activity that is self-serving, but out of genuine love for God, you center a life in God at the feet of Jesus, and you're going to live an explosively fruitful life. You're going to live an explosively fruitful life, and that life is going to be glorifying to God. Robert Mulholland, he's a spiritual director and author that writes on the spiritual journey. He says it this way. He distills down these kind of complex ideas into a simple phrase or simple uh, statement. He says, we'll expend amazing amounts of energy and resource being in the world for God. That sounds all right, doesn't it? I'm setting you up here, (laughs) just so you know. In the world for God. That sounds all right. But you see, we are called to be in God for the world. It's a radically different way of thinking. One, I'm God's servant out here doing things for him in the world. I'm God's man in the world, right? But the truth is I have to be in God first. And the degree to which I'm in God first will be the only degree degree to which I'm helpful. Because guess what? No one here this morning needs more of Hazen Stevens. You don't. And my degree to which I can offer something helpful to you is the degree to which I have Jesus Christ inside of me. Because we all need more of Jesus, right? And so my abiding is directly connected to my ability to produce fruit. Because you don't actually need Hazen, you need Jesus. You don't need God's man in the world. You need me in God, and then I'll have something to offer the world, right? Now, here's the, here's the thing that I, I, so now everybody's like amening me a lot, right? And I'm, I'm liking that, Okay but I'm gonna get after it here in a minute because there's something that keeps us from being able to truly live the way that I'm talking about. And I'm gonna read it to you this way. Robert Mulholland, he says it a little little more uh, intensely this way. He says, Lord, so the quote I gave in the context of the broader passage, Matthew 7, 22, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name? Obviously, these were serious, dedicated disciples, weren't they? Their lives had been spent doing God things. But Jesus replies to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Their lives, their ministries were not grounded in loving union with Christ. They were a religious false self. They were so busy being in the world for God, they failed to be in God for the world. And there's a great difference between these two ways of being. See, a religious false self that expends great amounts of energy and resource being in the world for God, but we are called to be in God for the world, and this is costly. It requires the abandonment, here's where I'm going to get on to all of us, all of us a little bit, the abandonment of the whole self-referenced structure of our false self, and especially the religious false self. Oswald Chambers says it this way, salvation is not merely deliverance from sin nor the experience of personal holiness. The salvation of God is deliverance out of self entirely into union with him. Here's what the religious false self does. Matthew 23, 23, the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithes of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, what we don't understand is we think of the, uh, you know, you see the Pharisees in the, in the Christian cartoon, and they're like, all dark and, you know, sinister looking. And I promise you, they look like your average pharisaical church attendee. (laughs) 
And what I mean by that, okay, is that um, they, were, they, were the religious, they were the religiously uh, well-trained. They were the ones who did everything in proper order. And as far as culturally, how they were perceived, they were exemplary concerning their, their conduct towards God. But what Jesus addresses with them is literally you're paying your tithe, but you're neglecting doing justice towards your neighbor. Could it be said that swaths of the evangelical church are paying their tithes, but they're not doing justice towards their neighbor in any kind of meaningful way personally? Now, he doesn't say don't pay your tithe. He said you should have done one without neglecting the other. Right? Because one is actually weightier than the other. If you give on Mission Sunday next week, boy, I hope I'm not hurting our offering right now. But if you give on Mission Sunday next week, but you're unwilling to go on mission for God, what are we doing? Seriously, what are we doing? Because we're doing the thing that is the less weighty thing. There's a weightier thing, justice, mercy, faith, and it is costly and demanding. And if we're just showing up to church on Sunday, paying tithe, reading the latest devotional book, what are we doing? We're just drinking milk and getting fat on it. Now, there's a season when we need milk. But if, if you're still just drinking milk as a 25-year-old in the Lord, need your diaper changed, right? Like, is there a time when it, it, there's an appropriate level of self-focus that's appropriate for children because they don't know how to meet their own needs. I'll explain more what I mean. But as we mature in God, the focus has to increasingly not only be about God, but about God and his glory expressed in our fruitfulness towards others. So as mature as Christians, there has to be a deep decentering that happens in our spiritual life where the religious activity we've done to benefit ourselves we now do to benefit others with diminishing regard for ourselves. This is the way of cruciform love. I use the phrase cruciform. Theologians use that form as a descriptor because there's been such a cultural, there is no other version of love in the Bible. Cruciform love is the only biblical version of love. But there's such a cultural distortion around love that we tend to think love is all about my feelings, right? When really all love is about is your death from a biblical perspective. God's essential nature, what most defines him at the center of his being, in 1 John 4, 7, it says God is love, right? But it's a specific kind of love. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us not love one another for God is, I'm sorry, beloved, let us love one another for God is of, uh, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love, and thankfully, very helpfully, he's going to define what that means in the very next verse. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him, we might be in him for the world. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us, sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We could all just park on that verse right there, and we, we could end the lesson right there and go home and say, okay, if you took nothing else from this lesson, if you meditate on that verse and say, how can I live that kind of love, right? 
not the ushy, gushy, you know, Hollywood movie version of love, but the kind of love that says love is defined by me dying to myself for the sake of another person. That's true biblical love. That doesn't feel good. Jesus did not feel good when he was in the garden saying, Father, take this cup from me. But then he ended with, not my will, but yours be done. It was grueling. It was agonizing. And it was our definition of love. It was our definition of love, not only how God loves us, which praise God that he loves us to the point of his own brokenness, right? But it was his example of how we must love one another. Real practical example of how this plays out and how an unhealthy version of this can play out. Where is the number one place cruciform love will express itself? In marriage, beloved. That daily dying to yourself. Love you, baby. When I got to this part, she's like, amen, amen. That daily dying to yourself, that taking up of the cross means that the success of my marriage is not defined by whether I am happy in it. The success, thank you, baby. The definition of my marriage is am I loving as Christ loved me, which means am I dying to myself and putting her before me? Okay, that's whether, my, whether I'm successfully doing marriage or not. And people will get into rough patches in marriage, and you hear it in our culture. You'll hear the cultural version, I left the marriage because I wasn't happy, right? When we don't under, and what we need to understand better and model better in the church is your marriage was never about your happiness to begin with. It's just true. It's true, right? And the other way that we distort it is we say, I felt like God gave me permission to leave my marriage because I wasn't able to fulfill my calling. That can't be true because your first and primary calling is to cruciform love within your marriage. Right? Your primary calling is to your primary calling. What you meant was I wasn't satisfied by my marriage in the way my calling satisfies me. So when I have to compare my ministry calling to my marriage, I'm going to choose my ministry calling because it was more self-satisfying, made me happier. I'm not happy to say that. That's not like a thing like I go, yeah, let me, let me stick it. That's the, I'm going, there, there's a, I'm very aware as, we, as I point out these are specks in the eyes of others, but it's a plank in my own eye, right? I'm going, how much do I evaluate the seasons of my marriage on my own personal happiness or satisfaction? That's not success in marriage. Success in marriage is did I die for my wife today? Did I lay down my life for my children today? And then the rest of the results are up to God, right? So we must grow in an unselfish form of love. Um, when we, and it's okay. How many people in here, just raise your hand if you want to. You started your walk with God because you didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> like, we can't confuse a reasonable starting place with being an appropriate destination. And it's okay that you started there. And I'm not banging on you if you started there because that's where I started. I was like, I don't want to go to hell. I think heaven and hell are real. I don't want to go to hell. Thank you, Jesus, save me. It was a very self-interested, right? But if I'm only serving God 10 years later because I'm still just afraid to go to hell, I haven't matured 
um, I haven't matured, and my, and my motivations have remained inherently selfish. Jesus is our example because he didn't do the Father's will to inherit a throne. He actually already had it. He did the Father's will in order to please another, to save a lost and perishing world for the sake of others. Jesus' spirituality and works were never self-interested. We must do good because we love God, we want to know him, and be his agent in a hurting and broken world. Uh, it's a subtle needle to thread between healthy commitment to God and self-interested, self-centered expression. And where it crops up in my own life, these are the thoughts where I'm trying to sort through. I go, this is the first time I preached here on a Sunday morning in a year, right? And I go, man, is it unhealthy to want to do a good job? No, it's not unhealthy. That's a normal desire. But if my main concern is how you perceive me, I lose my ability to serve you. If my main concern is how you perceive me, right, then what's happened is I'm self-referenced. My main, I have to learn to just, the true Christian walk is learning to just kind of delete yourself from that equation and go, okay, God, how do you want to work through me to serve your people, right? And how do I agree with that? And what, you know, and if it requires debasement on my part, I'll do it. If it requires labor on my part, I'll do it. If it requires me not doing a good job, because in some way that's going to serve your purpose, I would prefer to do a not good job, something that reflects badly on me, okay, and, and still connects people more deeply with God, right? And so, you know, if he wanted me to get up here and be drunk in the spirit and all wild and silly, if that for some reason is going to better serve the will of God, I got to be willing to do it. And it would be humbling and embarrassing, but if that's, you know, and that's where that discernment between you and the Lord, but the, the way you test that is, is my motive inherently selfish or is my motive uh, diminishing an in interest for myself? You'll never be completely pure and delivered because you'll always have that sliver of the flesh, that voice of the enemy calling you into self-interest. What we have to recognize is that call to self-interest, that's not God. And this is where we get confused is we begin to develop a paradigm that because God loves me, he wants to be all about me and all about my happiness. And so when something bumps up against my self-interest, we go, that isn't God. And what we have to recognize is it's okay to be there, but God's formation in your life is all about you learning to deny yourself. And you may not be good at it now, but that's where you have to go if you want to be mature in Christ. All right, now I'm going to get after us. Are you guys ready? I'm about to ruin something for y'all that many of us all love. And I, I'm, someone said bring it, but I haven't. You, it... <laughs> Top three Christian songs of 2019 to 2020. Now, I hope this doesn't ruin. I love these songs. All three of these songs have been like on repeat at my house. But I just said I want to evaluate where we are as a Christian corporate culture. I said, I'm going to look at the top three songs. I'm going to look at the lyrics. And I just wanted to see, I just said, what, what will I see when I look at it, right? And I'm going to look at the top Christian book. And, and, and when I looked at it, I, saw, I said, hmm, there's something there that we need to talk about as a, as a family. Reckless love of God. Let's go. I love this song. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so, so kind to me. 
The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me. I love that song. I had it on repeat. And you know why it's a good song? Is it's the Father's song to that place in us that as a child needs to be comforted. There's nothing wrong with that song. Hear me on this. There's nothing wrong with that song. Okay? But what happens is in commercialized Christian contemporary culture, they're only selling us and promoting what touches felt need. Emotional need, those things. And so what we have to recognize is it's okay to have sweets as a part of your diet. It's, it is. I like sweets. It's okay. It's all right to have your reckless love of God's song. The danger is when that becomes indicative of the entirety of our diet as a Christian, all, you, all you'll listen to in preaching, all you listen to in worship, all the movies and things, it's all about how you can become the best version of you and how much God is committed to that. Then God's just become your cosmic butler or your counselor and not actually transcendent and holy God, right? And so... I got two more songs. <laughs> May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations. And I love this song. I love this song. I did a wedding a few, like two weeks ago, and they did this song at the end. And it's a great wedding song because it's like, yes, put God's blessing. It's, number, it's from the Bible. It's number six, right? But I was just looking at it through the lens of what we're talking about. May his favor be upon you a thousand generations, your family, your children, their children. May his presence go before you, behind you, beside you, all around you, within you. He is in you. He is with you in the morning, in the evening, in your coming, in your going, in your weeping and rejoicing. He is for you. 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 And at this point, you might as well sing, it's all about you, it's all about you, it's all about you, right? Now, is it true that God is for you? Yes, absolutely, that's true. Is it good to sing that? Yes, especially in 2020. You didn't, we didn't even remember <laughs> that God is still for us. He has not forsaken us. He has not left us. But what we have to recognize is that things like 2020 happen, and it doesn't mean God has stopped being for us. It actually might mean that God is for us. How for Jesus was God? Completely. Like, God was completely for Jesus as he led him to the cross, as he put him in the grave, right? He was for him. The danger is we interpret, he is for you, he is for you, he's for you, and we don't have a full biblical framework for suffering. We don't have a biblical framework for cruciform love. And so when we hear he is for you, what we interpret it as is he is for my comfort. He is for my peace, which he is for your peace. But here's, here's how I would change that. Well, I got one more. I got one more song. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Now, this one, I like this one. That is who you are. That is who you are. That is who you are. But the essence of the song is you make a way for, for me, right? His name is above disease. His name is above cancer. His name is above depression. His name is above loneliness. Those are all felt needs that the listeners of that song feel. 
and they're writing an inspirational song to touch the felt needs of those listeners. These are the top three Christian songs. Why? Because they comfort us in what we need to believe about God as children. But what I want to suggest is that the journey of maturity is, okay, yes, now I've come to, I believe that you're for me, so I can go to the cross, right? Um, this is how I'd change it. Uh, this is how I'd, I'd redo these songs. God's love is about being recklessly loved, but also us learning to recklessly love others. When Jesus says he leaves the 99 to come after the one, that is an example he is setting for us. God's blessing is about us being blessed, but equally about us being a blessing to the nations. I will bless you that you might be a blessing, is what he pronounced over Abraham. Yes, God makes a way for us in overcoming obstacles in our lives, but he's also making a way through us for the generation that comes behind us. And here's where it gets, the religious false self gets especially dangerous when we don't make that pivot and we stay in the place of maturity, immaturity, where we think it's all about us, is I think it actually exposes us to deception. And so I Googled the top-selling Christian book on Amazon. It was number one yesterday. It's number three today. It's a book called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Has anybody here heard of Glennon Doyle? Okay. So I'm going to tell you about her here in a moment. But first, I want to read you the, the back of the book of Untamed. While speaking at a conference, she looked at a woman across the room and fell instantly in love. Three words flooded her mind. There she is. At first, Glennon assumed these words came to her from on high. She soon realized they had come to her from within. This was her own voice, the one she had buried beneath decades of numbing addictions, cultural conditioning, institutional allegiances. This was the voice of the girl she had been before the world told her who she would be. Glennon decided to quit abandoning herself and to instead abandon the world's expectations for her. She quit being good so she could be free. She quit pleasing and started living, soulful, uproarious, forceful, and tender. Untamed is both an intimate memoir and a galvanizing wake-up call. It is the story of how one woman learned that a responsible mother is not one who slowly dies for her children, but one who shows them how to be fully alive. It's the story of navigating divorce, forming a new blended family, discovering the brokenness or wholeness of a family depends not on its structure, but on each one's ability to bring their full self to the table. It is the story of how each of us can begin to trust ourselves enough to set boundaries, make peace with our bodies, honor our anger and heartbreak, and unleash our truest, wildest instincts so we can become the woman who finally look at ourselves and say, there she is. So Glennon Doyle, it's a number one book. Gospel Coalition wrote a good blog on it. It's called Untamed. It's a 2020 book, and um, it captured the hearts and minds of American women. It's hovering around the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list since its release. Over a million copies of this book have been sold. And again, yesterday, number one top seller in Christian books on, on Amazon. From her roots as a Christian mommy blogger to her rise in fame as a successful author, speaker, and activist, Doyle has made headlines in 2016. She announced she was leaving her husband of 14 years for soccer star Abby Wambach. The book opens four years ago, married to the father of three children, I fell in love with a woman. From there, the memoir documents what Doyle believes was her own untaming, the process of unlearning everything she was taught about family, gender, sex, love, motherhood, God, and Christianity, and forging her own path to find happiness.
This isn't some peripheral way of thinking. It isn't non-Christians that are making her book the number one Christian book on Amazon. There, there are a million people that at least have enough interest in her story, which is a story of not learning to listen to God's voice, but listening to her own voice, right? Not dying on behalf of her family, but learning to live fully alive in herself and to her own internal motives, learning to finally say to ourselves, there she is. And, uh, and I'm not trying to, I haven't read the book, obviously, and I'm not trying to point a judgmental finger at her. What I'm trying to do is say, hey, this is indicative of something that is happening in the church when we make our religious practice a- about ourselves. And then what happens is when the enemy comes and says, you're right, it should be about you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's in the music I've been listening to. That's in the preaching I've been at because we just, we've been unwilling to eat our meat, right? We've only wanted to feed ourselves on milk. And um, she quit being good so she could be free. There's only one person that can make you free, beloved. And see, this is the danger of the, of, uh, there's, a re- there's a religion that she, sounds like she's rebelling against a religious mindset that never gave her freedom in the first place. And the temptation is to think that now breaking free from those religious mindsets into licentiousness is going to bring me freedom. That is equally a bondage, right? And so what we have to do as Christians is say, no, there is someone who can set you free. It's not your religious practice, Martha. It's being at the feet of Jesus. It's actually communion with a holy and loving God that created you. And if you have challenges in your sexuality, I don't have a rule to give you that's going to, I don't have a process to fix that, but I do have a person. I have Jesus and Jesus can make your sexuality whole. And if there's a voice that you're hearing that's telling you something different than what Jesus tells you, that's not, that's not the voice of God. Second Timothy 3.15, in the last days will be terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. There's an unhealthy Christian focus on fulfilling our personal callings that are sometimes symptomatic of not only a heart that wants to obey God, but one that is also preoccupied with self-fulfillment, comfort, and blessing. Because we think, if I can get in my calling, then everything that I need will be supplied in that calling. And I'm telling you, the only thing that the calling from God on your life is bringing you into is deeper and deeper death. Like, I promise you, when I found my calling, I found a whole heap of problems and trouble all tied up in difficulty and adversity. There is grace, but grace is not something that makes you comfortable. Grace is what makes something that's impossible possible, right? I remember in Israel, I met, I was, in first year, I'm, I'm visiting in Israel, and I have a conversation with a guy, I'm in Haifa. He's a missionary there with Operation Mobilization. He's distributing Bibles, And he clearly had a maturity and a dedication that made me curious about his spiritual journey. And I asked him this question, how did you find your calling? Because I was hoping to glean some nugget, uh, some nugget about how I could discern my own. And what he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, well, for two years, it was not very encouraging, I'll tell you that. For for two years, he said, I sought God so that God would tell me what I was supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? And he said, he just 
fervent intensity, and he was very sincere. I mean, he obviously grappled with God around what am I supposed to do, right? What am I supposed to do? And, um, and he said, I never heard a word from God. And then he said, somewhere along the way, I decided to change the question that I was asking. God, what are you doing in the earth, and how can I get in the way of it? And he said, when I began to ask that question, I immediately found direction for my life. And when I was thinking about the shift that I'm describing, he went from a self-referenced point of view to a God-referenced point of view and another referenced point of view. All right, I'm going to have to wrap this up. Do my last story here. It's kind of cool. If you read Luke chapter 10, right, we have the story of Mary and Martha there at the conclusion of the chapter. But a few verses above, we hear the story of the scribe that came to Jesus very sincerely. And I'm going to paraphrase this story, okay? Um, but the teacher comes to him and tests Jesus because he wants to see what, whether he's sincere or not. And he comes to him with a question and says, uh, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? What is your way of reading it? And then he answers, he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. And, but then wanting to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor, right? And the first thing I want to point out to us before we get into how Jesus answered that question is that uh, this guy's whole line of inquiry is completely self-referenced. It's completely self-focused. He wants to know how do I inherit eternal life, right? He wants to know who is my neighbor, and he's asking that question because he wants to justify himself, so much like the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus says to him, sell all you have and things will be well with you, this, this parable is intended to speak to not just the question of how do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but what I think Jesus is discerning in the heart of the scribe, which is you are entirely others focused. And he goes on to tell him the, the story of the Good Samaritan where there's a Levite that passes by uh, this beaten Jewish man on the road, and there's a, a, a scribe that passes by. And what Jesus, I think, is saying to this lawyer is, in your way of thinking, you probably would have passed by that man just the same. But then there's a third figure in the story, the Samaritan, the religiously, culturally, ethnically abhorrent one. And Jesus takes him and makes him the hero, right? And what that guy does is incredible. It says he takes this broken man, and it would have been a risky situation on the road and you run across a person who has just been beaten. What if the robbers are still around, right? So at risk to himself, he lifts that man, puts him on his own donkey, which means his feet are hurting as he's walking with that guy on that donkey. It says that he bandages his wounds. He's probably tearing his own garment to create strips of clothing to bandage the man's wounds. He pours oil and wine, which are two very expensive things in that day, and he pours that onto the man's wounds. He takes him to the inn. He tends to his needs. He pays his way, and then he leaves money for whatever the continued needs are for the man until he recovers. And then he says, if there's anything more, charge it to my account for the sake of others, right? a spirituality that was all about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, it has to be entirely about how the resources of my life, the calling of my life, how those things are deployed in the showing of mercy to those who need it. And Jesus summarizes all the law and all the prophets in this parable, and then he says, 
who is, who, is, uh, who is the man's neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? And the lawyer answers, he says, and I love this because it's not Jesus' words, it's the lawyer's word. What was the lesson that the lawyer took away from the story? The neighbor is the one who showed mercy on him, right? What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faith. A deployment of our love in a way that helps the weakest and the least. Who are the broken in the road of our culture and our society? Maybe it's the transgender people. Maybe it's, it's people uh, you know, caught up in atheism or agnosticism. Maybe it's the people that are struggling with crack addiction or, or, or struggling with things on the streets. Where are the people that are desperately in need of mercy? And that's where you get to go do your first and second commandment love, right? Beloved, our ch- the church has lost its focus in the midst of the 2020 campaign on the showing of mercy. People's posts are unmerciful. They might be true, but they're not merciful, right? Where is the, the framing of all that God has commanded us in light of the mercy that God has shown us? Because ultimately, who is the broken down man who has been robbed by thieves? Who is the one who comes to kill, steal, rob, and destroy? You're that one who got plundered and left in the street. Who's the one that came by and scooped you up? It might have been that friend that invited you to church. It might have been that person that showed you mercy when you didn't deserve it. But ultimately, it was God in that person being merciful to you. But we forget that. We forget the mercy we've been shown. And we forget that it's really for the sake of others that we've been shown that mercy. All right, I'm going to tell one last story and then then I'm done. On Thanksgiving, my family and I, oh gosh, I'm not going to make it through this story without crying. All right, go ahead. I'm just just tell you all I'm about to cry. All right, maybe I won't. Yeah, worship team, you guys can come up. Um, Not that you were asking for my approval anyway. (laughs) But, um, and I don't even, I didn't even want to tell this story because I'd rather not be like, we went and did something kind on Thanksgiving, but I can't tell you a story without telling you that. So, we, um, so we went down with our friends at City Takers who do an outreach for people who are living on the streets, no home to go in, no place to do Thanksgiving meal. And we were like, we're going to do that on Thanksgiving evening. We've already spent Thanksgiving Day with our family in our home, and, and we go out there. It was a great experience, and I, I hope more of us can go out and do that next Thanksgiving. And, um, and I was just praying, like, Lord, what, you know, what do you have for me in this time of trying to serve others? And I just felt like the Lord just said, just pay attention for the one, you know, the one that that has an open heart to what anything you'd want to share or how you'd want to minister. And, and so a couple of people share testimonies. I share a testimony. We pray. We have really good food. And then towards the end of the time, I take some, uh, refill a drink for someone, and, and he and I strike up a conversation. And I think because of some of the vulnerable, hard things that I'd shared about my testimony, he, he shared something with me about his life, you know. And, uh, and what he said was, he said, there was a child that brought me, uh, a hot chocolate earlier. And I think it was either one of my kids or one of the kids that w- was there helping serve. He said, it broke me because I can't remember ever feeling that innocent. And he started to share his story. He said, you know, I grew up without parents on the streets in Korea. I came to the United States an orphan, got adopted into a pastor's family. He's like, I have a good dad. I've served God in different seasons, but he'd gotten wrapped up in in drugs, he's like, I'm 50 years old now. And I, I feel like God's abandoned me. And uh, 
His name's Cato, and I hope we can pray for her. I hope you guys will pray for Cato because he started to unpack where he was. He's told me some story, and they said, this is where I'm at right now. He goes, I've gotten the best night's sleep over the last few nights because I feel more comfortable sleeping on the streets than I do in a home because I've been on the streets more of my life than I've been in a home. He said, I don't feel comfortable with money in my pocket, not because I can go earn money, but because I know I'll go spend it on drugs. So I'd rather my pocket be empty than have that gnawing temptation to go buy crack. Okay. And in that moment, I just felt my complete inadequacy in the face of a hard life that was very broken. And, you know, I can go, man, brother, let me pray for you. But my prayers aren't going to do much unless God radically intervenes in this man's life, okay? Because I don't have what he needs. I can't counsel him out of that kind of brokenness and mess, right? It literally, I mean, my heart is so touched. I'm like, can I take him to my house? Should I bring him home with me? Like, you know, I'm like, I, but I'm just going, I'm going, how can I, my heart goes out to him in compassion. I go, how can I help fix this? And I have to be humbled at the reality that there's nothing I can do in my own power to fix this man's situation. There's nothing that I've got, right, in and of myself. It's not very encouraging, I know. But what can I do? <laughs> so I might lay my hands on him, I pray for him, and I commit in my heart I'm going to continue to pray for him, right? And I offer what I can in that moment. And I pray the most faith-filled prayer I can pray, and I've continued to pray for him since then. And one of the hopes in sharing this story is that you, some of you, it'll touch your heart, and you'll pray for him or or the version of him that comes along in your life. Because I believe, though I'm not enough, Jesus is enough. I do. I believe it. Jesus has to be enough. He has to be enough, right? But what pains me, okay, and this is it, is that in that moment, and I'll just be, I'm just going to put it, say it badly, and I pray, hope the Holy Spirit makes sense of it. What pains me is I don't have enough of God to lay hands on you and see the demons completely leave. I don't have it. I don't have it yet. I don't have it. But I want to pray. I don't want to fast. I don't want to seek the face of God till I get it. Till I get it on my life. And I want to build a church and a community where I say, hey, come, come here because we'll love you even though you're addicted to crack. And come over here to Good Landing because we'll give you a bed to sleep in. Come over here to Newbridge Church because there's a family where God is present. And I'm not overly concerned with the good thing I did on Thanksgiving because that's not worth squat. What I'm concerned with is what can I, the church, we, the church, do to help lift this man who's broken in the street with no hope? Where's the donkey I can put him up on? Where's the inn I can take him to? Where's the place I can lay him down and tend his wounds? For the sake of others. For the sake of others. That's why you're here. That's why we're here. I don't want fire so I can have a good experience with God and get an anointing, get paid a lot of money, have a nice car. I want the fire of God so that man can be delivered. I want the fire of God so he can have a new life. That's what Jesus gave me. That's what I want to give other people. <laughs> I want it so bad. And I can't really go after it till I get out of the way. And I don't know how to get out of the way. 
So I'm like, Lord, I will reckon myself dead in Christ. Crucify me, Jesus. Put the events in my life to crucify me. Make a mess of my life because my life is yours and that's what I want. John 7, 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Your relationship with God starts with your personal thirst, but it doesn't stop there. It says the one who comes to me and drink says rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. And I love that it's rivers and not reservoirs, beloved. It's rivers and not reservoirs. Because if you're thirsty enough and you get a drink of Jesus, it becomes a fountain inside of you. And you got to go back and keep drinking so that river keeps flowing. But the moment you dam that river up, the moment you start to think about self and become narcissistic and self-consumed in your spirituality and not sacrificial and cruciform in your love, then the river's been dammed. God will always give more through you than you ever have gotten from God. You don't want to give God your overflow. You want to give God your outflow. Right? Right? 